This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited to have Nicholas Davidoff here. His new book, The Other Side of Prospect, is a story of injustice. It is a story of America. It is a story that I am very excited for everyone to read. It is also set in New Haven, Connecticut. Nicholas, I'm going to ask you to put us in the New Haven that you grew up in and then the New Haven of 2022 before we really dive into the other side of Prospect. Sure. Um, It's so nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I grew up in New Haven. I grew up in a rented apartment in a two-family house with a single mom. And, um, you know, we'd left my father behind when severe mental illness descended and he became, I think, too violent for it to be safe for kids to grow up around him, which is his tragedy, of course. But that's why we were in New Haven, that we had left him in another city. Um, And my mom was a school teacher. And in those days, of course, school teachers didn't make that much money, especially if they were part time because they had issues of childcare in the afternoon, you know, when kids would come home from school or even before, you know, and my mom worried a lot about money. And, um, you know, I remember just being in my bedroom at night and hearing her out on the fold out, you know, and she would be saying aloud, um, how am I going to make it through the month and worrying about these things. And I mentioned this only because New Haven is has always been for a city of its scale, a remarkably diverse and complex city. It's a city of neighborhoods. You know, there are many, many different kinds of people living there in sort of close proximity. It's a small city, but it has the feel and complexity of a bigger place. And it was my, I think, good fortune as a child to play a lot of baseball right through my childhood, which made me, it's not unusual for children mainly to grow up in their own neighborhood. But if, like me, you played a lot of baseball, that meant you knew the whole city and you went to fields in every community. And at a certain point, I went to a field that is the baseball I played in a league that was basically in the Newhallville neighborhood in New Haven. And there I could see that in contrast to some of the people who were around either participating in baseball or just around the field, that I was a prince, that the conditions that I was growing up in were so much more lavish than people I saw. And of course, we didn't talk about these things. We just, I mean, it just seemed that way to me. Um, I felt as though there were issues of, you know, hunger and clothing, things like that. And I just began to think about this out of my position. And I remember, I mean, this is a really short walk from Yale University, which is basically, if you grow up in New Haven, you think that's paradise for a young person, because it's just, I mean, elite American universities are wonderful, wonderful institutions, but, and they offer so much, but if you're standing there so close and so far away, it was perplexing for a kid. And I used to, I I remember the interior diction so well, it's really formal in my memory. And I just was standing out there in the infield and I was thinking, how can this be? You know, how can there be such juxtaposed contrast in such close proximity? And I just didn't understand it. And so I grew grew up and I moved away to New York and I spent my life there as a writer. But every time I'd come back to see my mom, I would see that just again, anecdotally, it seemed as though things were only going better and becoming more prosperous at the university and that the neighborhood that I'd known since I was a kid, this was nothing was improving. It was a post-industrial neighborhood where there wasn't any work and all the consequences that come with that. And I thought about this a lot, as you would think about it, you know, periodically, the New York Times would do a piece about the two Connecticut's, this Mm -hmm. wealthy, wealthy state with its impoverished cities. 
I felt I didn't have enough experience as a writer to take on, um, but it was something that was always on my mind. And I was sort of, it's a funny thing to say, I suppose, but I was getting ready to do this and thinking about how it could be done because it felt complicated and it felt difficult and challenging. And it also just to me, it felt really important. And there were, in my mind, lots of reasons why this was persisting, but I didn't know if they were true. But eventually, at a certain point with my family, I moved back to New Haven and I just began working on the project that became this book. New Haven, when I was a child, still had the remnants of being a flourishing city for um, having a flourishing working class and all the attendant uh, community aspects that come Mm -hmm. with it. It had more family-owned businesses. It seemed to me just in my childhood that even though things weren't going well at the factories anymore, most notably the Winchester Repeating Arms Factory, which was the big factory in New Haven, that even though things weren't necessarily going well anymore, um, there was still a certain amount of opportunity. And that when I came back to New Haven, it seemed only diminished in that respect. New Haven is kind of a representative American city in this way because of its small scale. It speaks to problems that are really American problems and that are resonant across the country. And that's the beauty of this book that you put so much into context. And yes, it is deeply seated in New Haven and Connecticut itself. But it's really important, I think, for readers to approach this with an open mind that this isn't just a Connecticut story, that this isn't just the East Coast, that you're covering a lot of ground. This is 500 interviews over eight years. This is serious reportage. And The book opens with a murder in 2006. So before we get to the people, I'm just, what does New Haven feel like in 06? Because after reading the book, I'm convinced this was a major sort of pinch point in New Haven's evolution. Well, you know, one of the ironies of 2006 is that's the year that the Winchester Gun Factory, which is now a place that once um, employed more than 20,000 people, that's just a staggering number of jobs. And I guess what I want to say about those jobs that's so important is that these were there were available at that company in its prime jobs where people who are undereducated or didn't yet have a trade or a skill could arrive and could be taught a skill, could work their way up, and therefore could provide eventually a middle-class existence and a better life for their kids, so to speak. I mean, that would be their locution, right? People would always say, I want to provide a better life for my kids. And that was really possible. And without with that deficit, with that void of work and opportunity, the jobs that existed for people who weren't trained and in, in, in highly educated were, if they existed at all, the jobs were n- not especially fulfilling, most people would say, who, who, who I spoke with, but also they didn't pay as well. And so you couldn't buy a house. You couldn't buy the car that you wanted. You couldn't eventually invest and move up and out. You have to keep in mind that the neighborhood that we're talking about is one of these, is a great, I mean, to me, an iconic American neighborhood in that it began as a place where immigrants came and it's every wave of immigration, major wave of American immigration, whether it's Irish or Italian or Polish or other places in Eastern Europe, right on German. You know, these were places where people, this was a place where people could come and they could you know, the phrase is way overused, but the American dream, this was it. People would start out and their lives would really flourish. But nobody's lives flourish without opportunity. And I would say what what really the, the, the short answer to your question is, is that for certain kinds of people, New Haven had far less opportunity in 2006 than it had before. 
And when the work disappears, that's when trouble comes. And so the kinds of trouble that was going on in a small city, again, has more amplitude because if someone is shot in a small neighborhood, everybody feels it. And I guess sometimes I thought of it like shark attacks. When we hear about shark attacks in places like the Massachusetts coast, one person is attacked by a shark and everybody's terrified for a long time. Imagine living in a small neighborhood where one person is shot and killed. Everybody feels it. And in the community that I was writing about, at that point, everybody knew somebody. And that is just a devastating thing for morale throughout a community. It's also just terrifying for young people who are, you know, every day walking around in fear. There's too much fear. And there's also an abiding feeling that whatever fear and whatever lack of opportunity and whatever um, existence of violence is existing in a community, that there isn't as great a concern elsewhere in the city or in the country for it. And I would say that this is a book I hope that has many important themes running through it. And one of them is indifference, that people felt not cared about, that the concerns of the community and the fears of the community just weren't something that mattered to a lot of people. Because otherwise, why would this predicament that had been going on since I was a little kid endure? Pete Fields is the name of the man who was murdered in August of 06. And a young man named Bobby is ultimately prosecuted and jailed for Pete's murder. And in fact, Bobby confessed twice to a murder he did not commit. And Pete He's kind of a character. I'm sorry I never got to meet him um, outside of your book because he's just clearly part of the community. He, it, his family moved from South Carolina as part of the Great Migration North, and he is, I don't want to say the mayor of New Hallville, but he is clearly happy there, and he is raising his family there, and there is, there's a lot of good. He also pays his bills in cash, and this gets factored in, obviously, when he's murdered in a robbery. but. How did you come across this case? Right. It's one thing. I mean, what I've been saying so far is an idea about a story, but it isn't a story. It isn't a narrative. And, you know, just the way it's the way people read is there must be a story. There's got to be narrative because otherwise. Right. And so when I came back, I was thinking about how to tell this story. And I wanted to meet people who in one way or another resembled the young people who I'd known as a kid. And I, I, I had some, I was talking to various people and I had some ideas. And then I got a call from a lawyer whose name is Ken. And he called up and he said, you know, I've heard about what you're doing. And I have a client whose experience I think speaks to what you're trying to do. Would you be willing to come and talk with me? So I remember this was on a sun uh, was on a snowy Sunday, and I went to his law office, which was an old, uh, you know, ha large house, and he'd been given the top floor. So I was up there in the attic, and there's snow <laughs> everywhere, and it's we're under the eaves, and it's just he's a really informal guy. You know, I can't remember what he was wearing, but it was probably something like shoot. It's the middle of winter and he's probably wearing like running shorts and dress shoes and, you know, a dress shirt, which is misbuttoned. I mean, he's that kind of person because he's completely focused on his job. He's the kind of guy some you would really want for your lawyer. His whole office is full of all these boxes and the boxes are his legal case. And he explains that this person he represented had been sent to prison at 16 for confessing twice to a murder that he didn't commit. And he's become dedicated to this case. Now, I have no idea in whether or not this is all true. 
but I looked at the documents and they seemed pretty compelling to me. And I, you know, and soon enough, I met this person whose name is Bobby and I got to know Bobby. And again, my role as a writer is I have to remain neutral and I don't know what really happened, but I can start to find out what happened. And one of the reasons I wanted to start and find out was that I was immediately interested in, and I just really liked talking with Bobby because Bobby, if you're looking for someone whose life speaks to the experience of many people, it's wonderful to have someone who one of his many virtues is that he's really observant. And Bobby was really observant. He had a really good memory and he was was a candid person, both about his own faults and about the faults of, I don't know, his surroundings. But I, when I say faults, I don't mean that he was a person full of blame or anything like that. I just thought that he was a person who saw the world in an honest and reasonable way, which made it especially ironic that, you know, that he had allegedly made two false confessions to a murder that he didn't commit at 16 and was in prison for 38 years because of it. His mom was 15 when he was born. He's one of 10. I mean, you make it clear throughout the book, too, he's got a very high... I guess you could call it EQ is what some people call it, emotional intelligence. Um, he's clearly, as you said, attuned to the world around him. He is very observant. And he has a moral clarity, even when he's not making great decisions. And part of why he confessed twice is a combination of police tactics, but also wanting to please the adults. We're talking about a teenager. Your brain doesn't even finish fully cooking until it's 25. Right. I would also say that you confess to things for all sorts of reasons that nobody mm -hmm. can imagine falsely right. confessing to something, you know, serious that they didn't do, much less murder. You know, there are all sorts of attendant pressures on him in the moment. He's far from the only person who's who's had this experience. And if you look at the historical record of people who have this experience, he's an entirely consistent with what happens, which is that people feel increasingly desperate. They don't know what to do. They want to get out of there. They want to please the authorities. They think that, you know, well, the truth will come out. So if I say, I, I trust the system so that in this moment, sure, if I say that something, I say something that's not true, it'll get me out of here and it will give the, the system the opportunity to make things work. And also he was told that he was going to be given this incredible deal where all he'd do is a little, you know, a little time on probation, but that if he didn't, if he didn't agree to the deal, he'd get the death penalty. And there's more. I mean, it's just that the pressure on him and the various vague and 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 clean promises that were offered to him, it all just really didn't seem good. And furthermore, such is the nature of violence in his community that for him to talk about anybody else who might have been involved was anathema. He just wasn't going to do it because snitching is something that he believed could just ruin his life and the life of other people. Susan Fields, Pete Fields' daughter, the victim's daughter, thought there was something squirrely and wrong when she heard Bobby in court. She was looking at this kid going, something's not right here. I mean, the victim's daughter is saying something's not right. And yet this train is on the, pardon the metaphor, but the train is on the tracks and it is going at a million miles an hour. Bobby does not have a chance. He doesn't have a great lawyer. He ends up in jail. His original lawyer is not His original not lawyer, great. yeah. Ken Actually, is great. his original lawyer is a good lawyer. It's just his original lawyer 
I mean, his original lawyer is just representative of the system in another way. In other words, the flood of cases, the fact that most people that the lawyer would defend are taking pleas because they really are guilty, but some aren't. I would say one of the lessons of this of this project is complexity and what happens when you undervalue complexity. And I think it's very easy when you live apart from a community that where there is poverty or where there is an unusual, just in terms of percentages, amount of violence or something, to just make assumptions about it because you don't really know anything. But as soon as you become, as Susan Pete's daughter, of course, was familiar with the community, you see that you see the consequences, A, of undervaluing complexity in people, and also that the, the, the consequences of a kind of indifference. Because if you're indifferent, that means you lump everybody together and somebody like Bobby just becomes one of those kids. But and and, and this really is what makes young people, you know, vulnerable to the criminal justice system like Bobby, because people don't know Bobby, including the police, because he is just someone who is just another kid. He's the phrase used in the neighborhood would be just around because he's just enough. He's just around. He's just another kid in the community. He becomes more vulnerable to all kinds of things more vulnerable to violence, more vulnerable to mistakes in policing. Also, I have to say, can be said about policing, that it's very easy to, to, to make broad assumptions about policing, whereas just like violence, it doesn't take many police officers who aren't doing their job well to make everybody think that police officers in general are terribly flawed. You know, most police officers get into it for the right reasons. And Bobby himself would have encountered many, many police officers who were really good at their work. It's just that he had the bad fortune to run into a situation that in terms of investigation really, really wasn't going well. That this was a this was a flawed investigation in all sorts of revealing ways. Here you are talking to everyone you can talk to, digging in, doing the work figuring out who might be feeding you a line and who's not. I mean, this is not a small project, and yet you're also trying to stay, shall we say, without a personal agenda. You're really trying to make sure that everyone is represented. So the reader, like me, can walk in and have many, many opinions and many, many judgments. So can we talk about that process, though? I mean, you've written about your family. You've written about spies. You've written about baseball. I mean, how do we get here? I mean, obviously, New Haven is in your blood. This place is in your blood. You know it. You are not an outsider, and yet you kind of are because you're still a white guy writing about the criminal justice system in America right now. As far as I can tell, there are two kinds of nonfiction writers. They're nonfiction writers who are generalists, who write about many different kinds of things. Um, a good example would be Ian Frazier, who's a writer I have tremendous respect for. Adrian Nicole LeBlanc would be that kind of writer. There are many writers who just write about whatever interests them, and their interests seem to be far afield. And then, and this is no judgment, and then there are writers who are more drawn to a smaller area, which is um, something that where they develop um, increasing interest in I'm sure, expertise. For me, I think, though, that every writer is identifiable by what they do. And I and I just would, I would say I notice about myself at this point that there seems to be a series of books, no matter what the ostensible topic, that they're all about outsiders who in one way or another exist on the periphery of American culture 
and through their own personal virtues and sense of agency, and also through big, significant American institutions, find a way to penetrate the cultural mainstream and maybe even influence it. So I would say that this book is entirely consistent with those things and with me in the first respect. I would also say that one of the things about this book that it could have been was it could have just been something like, uh, it could have fulfilled a genre. It could have been a true crime book or something. But to me, that didn't seem like it would really respond to the things that I was thinking about. And this created great complication and difficulty in writing it because I wanted it to have a narrative. And yet embedded within that narrative, I wanted to address some of the things that we've been discussing and also many others. But I didn't want it to be full stop. Now we're going to talk about innocence and experience, or now we're going to talk about fear or hopelessness or fatalism or many of the things that I was thinking about. And another way that, that, that you know, you ask about research, another thing that seemed really important to me was to understand everything and when you want that, that seems related. For example, I spent an unbelievable amount of time trying to understand how a neighborhood actually becomes segregated, which is really difficult because this is not something that anybody's really proud of in retrospect or keeps records of and so forth. And it's not going to be a big part of the book. It's going to be like two paragraphs. But I think you have to know this. And you're, I, I think it just adds ballast to everything that you're saying or claiming if you really, really, really work hard to understand things like the nature of policing. I mean, there are just so many subjects embedded within, and you want those subjects not to overwhelm your reader so that it feels like a mishmash of different genres and it just feels, but you want it to thread through in, a, in, a, in, in one hopes, I mean, you know, it's, it's aspirational, but a beautiful braid and where all these things that a reader you feel should know um, are known and they inform the story that you're trying to tell. And it's much harder to create a narrative out of, you know, sort of those thematic issues. But that's also for me, the joy of nonfiction is that it takes a long time to figure out how you're going to embed those themes into storytelling. And so I can say that for me, the way I do it is on index cards, and I write down the themes that I want to include. And then it's for me, I think of it a little bit like a freight train. And freight train has many boxcars and they might be different colors and things. And it's somewhat arbitrary to just somebody who's sitting at the crossing, which comes first, but it's not arbitrary when you're organizing a book. So I do it on the floor and I just take all these index cards and I just move them around for weeks. It was many weeks, you know, until I'm satisfied that there is a thematic narrative, which is consistent with whatever the, can we say dramatic narrative? Yeah, it, completely. And, and this is getting really... <laughs> This is inside baseball or something. That's how you, you know, you at least aspire to write a really good book. I want to go back to this experience and innocence pairing, because when you look at what happens to Bobby in his life, and also there's another kid called Major who most likely is the one who murdered Pete Fields, but he himself was murdered. And I don't, I'm not giving anything away there because it happens very early in the book where you sort of put everyone together. But Major and Bobby did not have the easiest childhoods. Bobby's was certainly better than Major, but there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of grief. Poverty is expensive, and I don't think a lot of people think about how expensive it can be if you don't have a bank account or you get overdrawn or you're cashing. Like, there are just so many things. That eviction is expensive, all of these things that no one really thinks about. And here are these two kids 
who really, they don't have it. Well, Bobby ultimately has people going to bat for him later, but at first, Grace, Bobby's mom, is wonderful. She clearly loves her kid, but she doesn't have a ton of resources either. And right. Major's family seems very complicated. Yeah, I, t- I think of w- perhaps the most s- significant resource in a child uh, is hope. And, and and another way to think about it is time horizon. In other words, if your concern in your childhood is just getting through every day and it seems dire to get through every day, it's more difficult to have an, an unfurling sense of yourself in the future. And if there is no reason for you to have hope that your future will be something that will be fulfilling for you, especially if you're a person of real talent like Major and also like Bobby in different ways, then I think that that is incredibly discouraging. Now, most people who get really discouraged and feel fatalism and hopelessness don't shoot other people. It's really rarely rare, even in the most violent American neighborhoods that this happens. But the cost of violence, even though it is so rare, is enormous for reasons that we already talked about. But people do respond in all sorts of other ways to a feeling of hopelessness and the unfairness that people feel that right over there, there are other children of just this age who have so much. And you can see it. And you wonder, like, what is it about me? This is what people say. It's not me. It's what people say. Like, what is it about me that I don't have these opportunities? And with that can come a kind of a shame. And with that can come an anger. And people who really think a lot about violence were completely consistent with my more anecdotal experiences that these are the kinds of things that in these rare instances can lead some people to get so angry that they respond in that way. Because another thing about violence is that it is in for people who feel no agency at all, a gun can be a source of power. I think, too, there's this idea of complex trauma syndrome where you never actually get to the post-traumatic stress disorder piece because the trauma continues around you and you never have a chance to actually get to the other side. And that changes the brain's chemistry. It does horrible things to people who are growing up in those situations. And yet Bobby really is an extraordinary guy. He really is kind of set aside. And when he gets to prison, he really is sort of focused on making the best of a very bad situation. And it was really extraordinary to read. And how much access did you have to him? Because he wasn't released until 15. Right. I mean, how much access did you have? Well, this was a very fortunate thing. So once I was introduced to him um, by his lawyer, typically somebody like me would get to interview someone like Bobby once. But I went to interview the commissioner of corrections in Connecticut at the time. And I told him what I was doing and he was interested. And he's a pretty progressive guy. And he said, what you're doing seems important to me. I think you should be allowed to go and talk to him as often as possible. So I went and talked with him and I felt, to, and we also corresponded. And so I felt I was getting to know him. You know, eventually I suppose it's no secret that he's released. And once he's released, then, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with him about his life. But even while he was still in prison, he told me how to get in touch with all sorts of people who knew him. And I tried, you know, it's impossible to really know someone, but it's a, it is possible to have a strong sense of them. And so I talked to family members, I talked to friends, I talked to teachers, I talked to other people who were in prison who knew all about the case. I talked to, 
you know, just as many people in his community about him, keeping in mind, I mean, his lawyer sometimes calls him an extraordinary, ordinary person. And what I take that to mean is that his childhood experience speaks to the experience of many, many kids, that everybody's an individual and that everybody has their own complication, but that through the prism of somebody like Bobby, you can know a lot about childhood as he lived it. I have to say two other things about Bobby. One thing is, is that he was always aware that this was something I wanted to do, and he saw it to some degree as something virtuous he could do. This is his belief that he didn't think it was right and didn't think it was fair, the, sh the, the shape of his community. And he felt that in some small way, it wasn't just that he wanted to get out of prison. It was also just that he wanted things to be better for other people. I would say also that Bobby is somebody, again, ironic, given that he is confesses to something that he didn't do, who has a really strong and, um, I would say, dynamic ethical compass. And one of the ways that he resolved this horrible, you know, in to for I, I would think for most people incomprehensible predicament, right? That you're you're spending 38 years in prison for something that you would abhor, the, the an act that you would never ever commit, but not only never commit, but just think as a just a vile thing to do, as he would say, is that in some way he wanted to find a moral explanation. And what he kept settling on was that. On there must be a reason that he deserved it. And he searched and searched for reasons that he could be there because he should be there. And, you know, there are many heartbreaking aspects to this story. And for me, that was one of the most painful. There are plenty of people who are in prison who didn't do the things that they've been in prison for. And how they reconcile it is um, invariably a moving and, and, and um, I keep using that word, but it's true. It's a complicated, resolution. It absolutely is because re-entry is not something that people people often think about. And when I say re-entry, I mean re-entry for people who are released from prison. And this is a big piece of Bobby's story. I mean, he's released and he's never had a job. He tries so hard to get jobs. I went with him to Home Depot, which was his first job interview. First, he filled out these massive, massive questionnaires that took hours to do. And then he came back for his interview. And first, they said, well, you know, you're you're convicted of this terrible crime. He said, no, 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 no. And they said, oh, and they apologized. And they said, well, we'll let you know because there's this job opening and we don't know what the job is. And so he's waiting and waiting to hear if he gets this job. And finally, he doesn't get the job. And this is a person who's been in prison for nine years from the time he was 16 years old. He's had sufferings that some people compare him to Job. And, you know, I mean, he's really, really a person who deserves a break, who deserves a job, and he really wants this job. And it turns out that the job was collecting the shopping carts in a parking lot and organizing them in the central location. I mean, in, in other words, a pretty fundamental job. You know, everybody's got to start somewhere, and he really recognized that, but that somehow he couldn't even get that break. And he, But he would always say, I mean, one of the things that I find so moving about him, and it's um, it gets to me. But he would always say, "Nikki, you know how it is with me in tragedy. I, I'm I'm sad for a little, and then I move on." And that's true. That he had, I thought, incredible forbearance, and he's a resilient person. But even if you are a forbearant and resilient person, and I don't want to make this sound too dark. In other words, this is something that would just be painful to read, and and, and people should turn away from it. I, I just, because I do think that he is a real and inspiring person in lots of ways. But I also think that there are tremendous costs, both to the way he grew up, where he grew up, 
but also you can't spend all that time in prison without the experience really marking you. And um, I think that that's something, again, when we talk about reentry and Americans not knowing that much about it, whatever they've done, most people who come out of prison would really like to you know, move on with their lives. And it's incredibly hard to move on when you have a prison record and when you have no tangible handhold to move on through life. We've all heard about people who come out of prison and have these exemplary existences, but that those are those are our rare people. And those are sort of, those are kind of shooting stars. And, you know, to go out of prison and end up at Yale Law School, the people who know best how rare that might be are the people who end up at Yale Law School. It just, it's it's a really, really, really difficult thing to do. And obviously, since societies benefit for people to succeed, because eventually, if people, if you don't succeed, find, become a member of the workforce, find some source of fulfillment, what's going to happen? You might fall back on what you know, which is of no benefit to anybody. I do want to bring up, though, someone who did go to Yale Law School, because you've dedicated the book in part to Reginald Dwayne Betts, the poet. Um, he's best known for Felon, but um, everyone should go read his stuff immediately because he's really fantastic. But yes, he was convicted of a carjacking, I believe, when he was right. a teenager in yeah. Maryland, went to prison and is now a lawyer who has passed the bar and can practice in the state of Connecticut, which is not a small thing, but there was a lot of controversy when he went to law school and said, I'm going to sit for the bar and I'm going to become a practicing attorney. And lots of eyebrows went up because apparently that's what we do now. But how did you and Dwayne meet? I think I met him almost right away when I when I moved to New Haven. And um, sometimes when you're a writer, especially when your concerns as writers align, it can be a little like, remember at school or even if you went to a summer camp or something, it offers more prolonged and intensified experience. So you get to know somebody better faster. And so we pretty quickly began talking on the phone every day. And we just became very quickly really, really good friends as we remain. And um what can you say about you know the people you love? You just you you feel lucky that you, you know, found a <laughs> found a friend. I remember Russell Baker you know, the former New York Times columnist, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, wrote wonderful memoirs and things. He once wrote something in the New Yorker Review of Books, I remember, where he said, I, you know, that he noted that he had passed the age where you could make new friends. And I found that one of the most depressing things ever, because it seemed to me that, you know, I think friendship is just undervalued in its, A, its complexity, but also in its, in, in, in all that it brings to life. And it's something I'm surprised that writers don't, you know, if you look at the history of fiction, Friendship isn't, you know, representative with the consequence that it has as in human life. I felt really lucky that, you know, that here Dwayne and I were with, you know, we're married, we have our own families and kids and things like that, and that we could become such good friends. And I think, too, though, we need both sides of the story. We need the Bobbies. We need the Majors. You know, we need the Bobbies and the Dwaynes, too. I mean, it is, as you say, it's so complex. Yeah, people can't. I mean, you know. Bobby's experience, as complex it is, as it is, it's true that, you know, happy endings are far rarer than we think. Yeah. But in society, we really need happy endings. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't feel as though there's the possibility of a happy ending, if you don't feel that on some level, that's why the, the, the American dream has such, you know, is such a persistent and shimmering thing for people. Because if you don't feel that there is this possibility, then why try? 
I mean, I feel like society depends both in a practical way, but also emotionally on the possibility of these, of, you know, of shooting stars, of wonderful things happening. And I also feel as though the many of the people I talked with, not everybody feels that they have to become everything that society most values as a, as a, you know, as a, whether in music or in sports or in politics or whatever it is, nobody has to, to win everything, but everybody does want to, in one way or another, feel fulfilled. And if you feel fulfilled yourself, you just feel happier for other people too. There are many, many things I drew from this experience. And some of them are just so simple, which is if you don't have hope, then that is perhaps the most destructive thing there can be. And it's so, it's so common for people to be deprived of hope in communities like the one that I was writing about. And it's so unfair. And if you think that your lack of hope is coupled with unfairness, there you have the real problem of inequality. There you have just a short walk away, people who have so much hope. And so, and it's not that those people don't have to work hard too. It's not that they don't have their own problems and so forth. It's just, at least they have hope. And at least there's something that is animating their experience that gives them that kind of time horizon. And if you don't have hope, that's to me really where the trouble starts. And that was the great thing about those factories. Those factory jobs were often miserable. They weren't they, they weren't great in any respect, but they were the, the the you know they they were the fundament. They were a kind of architecture that to provide hope, even if not for you, but for other people who you were in your family or something. And to take that away, to take away the source of hope, that's just really where the trouble starts. And I just I I returned to what I thought about as a kid, staying on that baseball field, which is, you know. On some level, I just thought, how can this be? How can there just be there? Because there really has been no post-industrial solution generation after generation, and that creates generational poverty. And if you look at the research, and I don't get all wonky or anything, but if you look at the research of people like Raj Chetty and these and formidably, you know, formidably gifted academics like that, they'll just show you how some of the real troubles that young people have are generational and they exist again and again and again, unless there's some sort of great social shift. And I would say a post-industrial solution is something that is the kind of great social shift. It doesn't exist. And I hope, I guess one of my intentions was to say, not only to answer that question from when I was a kid, but also to say like, still, how can this be? How can this country not address something which is just so conspicuous? And I guess part of my answer is part of its indifference and one element of that indifference is, is that you see what you want to see and that you have to be trained to see. One of the things that Raj Chetty, for example, researches is what happens when people, when, when, when barriers are porous and people move. Turns out it's better for everybody. So, I mean, it's in the enlightened self-interest of communities. It isn't just, people don't want to typically do things just out of guilt. But if it's in your enlightened self-interest, well then. I got very invested. In Bobby, I got very invested in Pete and his scratch-off cards. I was very invested in Major, even though I knew this kid was just not going to have a great go of it. And I wanted to see how Ken was going to shore up. And I wanted to see, you know, there's some other folks who pop up in the book where I had many, many feelings. And then they either pleasantly surprised me or they made my feelings more clear. And I am going to let readers experience that because I think you've captured a time and a place and us. And it's not just New Haven. It's really not. It's us. I mean, the gun violence and the hopelessness or the hopefulness. I mean, there are a lot of really great moments in this book. I also want to bring up your bibliography, though, 
because I think you did a very cool thing. <laughs> we have to talk about the novelists that you included in your bibliography. No, this matters because, I mean, there are people who are just like, well, I don't want to read nonfiction because it's like eating my cultural vegetables. And it's like, well, no, you have to care about the language too. And that's something, I mean, you're friends with poets. But let's talk about the fiction for a second because Toni Morrison's there, Dostoevsky's there. I mean, Virginia Woolf, which surprised me a little bit. But let's talk about you as a reader and how we get to this point. There are two kinds of reading, right? There's the reading that you're obligated to do for your project. And for this, I, and like every, I'm really lucky. I read very, very quickly. And I have to, I have to, you know, say thank you to my mother for that because we grew up in a pretty austere, what yep. seemed to us pretty austere. I mean, the only electronic device was a, was my mom's clock radio. I mean, there was no TV and where my kids right now would be maybe looking at a screen or something when they were feeling tired we were rereading books. And yep. the way you become a really quick reader, in my experience anyway, is you reread books that you like, because then you go faster and faster. So I can read really quickly. And so what I mean to say is, is that, so I read anything anybody suggested that I read for this book. And if you saw all the books that I took out of libraries, if you saw the masses of books around my office, you have to understand in order to know what you want to write about. But it also really, really helps you to ask good questions. And I wanted to ask informed questions. And I knew that demographers considered New Haven the, the quote, most normal American city. And most normal means, you know, salutary things and also dispiriting things. And that's America. But also just for me, I, re I'm, I read all kinds of things. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about Virginia Woolf because Virginia Woolf is so concerned with urging herself to think hard about the experiences of other people. And to me, what kind of a writer you are rises and falls on your ability to have compassion and understanding and also a sense of, I guess, I think neutrality and validity too, to those that you're writing about. So sure, Virginia Woolf, but it's also important for me to read, I thought, accounts by people like Chekhov and people like Dostoevsky of Russian prisons. Because if you read them, you will see that the experience of prisoners in 19th century Russia isn't so far afield from what people are experiencing in American prisons now. In other words, I mean, psychologically, that the condition isn't so different. And I just think that, you know, what great liter literature can do, in addition to entertaining you, is it can show you things about the commonality of mankind. It can show you things about how what I said earlier about justice is a prevailing idea over time. It can show you that what we research will now tell us about what prison does to people. In other words, it's two years of your emotional life for every year you spend in prison. Well, you can see that in a 19th century Russian, you know, memoir. When you say vegetables, to me, I spend so much time doing the best I can to write beautiful sentences. And this is not typically, if you read reviews of nonfiction, I shouldn't complain about it too much, but this isn't something that people ever spend much time thinking about unless it's a very, very sort of creativity forward form of nonfiction. But of course, for me, I'm trying to write things that have the feeling of the books I love, irrespective of genre, irrespective of whether they're fiction or nonfiction. I want it to be as beautiful as possible because I feel like that honors the subject and also honors your reader. You're, there are many, many things a person can read. And when you're asking a person to take a lot of their time and spend time with your book, I think you should give them the most fruitful time possible. And so for me, it's just, it just seems implicit that any writer with that kind of ambition should read poetry and they should read 
you know, great drama and they should read, you know, the things that are moving to them. I just don't think it's so far afield to read Toni Morrison or to read, well, I mean, for me, the the most inspiring things I read in writing this book were easily James Baldwin's nonfiction, which talk about a beautiful writer, but also talk about somebody who's writing in his time, anticipating our time. Yep. And also a book, I think, I mean, we hear a lot about James Baldwin and rightfully so, because to me anyways, the great nonfiction writer of the 20th century, yep. but also American nonfiction writer, but also I think Claude Brown's Man, Child in the Promised Land is a book that, you know, that for me was something that that I looked at and it was kind of a light up there for me is something that was so beautifully done and had so much aspirationally in common with what I hope to do. And I just thought it was a beautiful book that way more people ought to read because it really, really, what, what a great books do. They spoke to, again, they speak to their time and they speak to our time. And this is, and they do so in a way that a reader you hope can enjoy it, but if not can enjoy it, kind of can't escape it. And that book just really, Man, Child, and Promised Land just inhabited me. At various times, I took pieces of it, you know, sort of quotations from it, and I would look at them, and I would look at things that Bobby had said, and it was remarkable to me that, you know, how 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 consistent they were, how well they paired. I am so excited for readers to get their hands on the other side of Prospect. I think you have done a very big, amazing beautiful thing. And I really am excited. And I'm excited for them to have all of the feels too, because I had many, many opinions. I mean, seriously, my galley is covered in post-it notes and lots of annotations. I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative of you well, doing that and saying that. You know, you you feel a little crazy at a certain point with how yeah, much... I get it. No one should ever pity somebody who has the opportunity to write books. I mean, it is a wonderful, wonderful job. But I will say that there are just costs in life. And, you know, I I worried a lot about my kids while I was writing this. And also, yeah. you know, I also worried that I had this something out in the sky where I could see how this could be and that it was up to me not to mess it up. Yeah. That, and it would be hard not to mess it up there were so many important elements that yeah. contributed to the story and yet it had to be a story yeah. and how I could do that and how I could avoid people criticizing me for any of the things that people criticize writers for seemed yeah. like it just seemed these were adjacent issues that one had to think mm -hmm. about, but that were also just, it was a lot. And that as a writer, you can think really hard about what you're doing and you can be very conscious of your aspiration and your ambition. Mm -hmm. and you can also know what you have. But you can never know, as anybody who's making anything can never really know, you can believe, but you can't know that it works. And so when you tell me about those post-it notes, it's very moving to me, and I appreciate it. I cannot wait for other people to do the same to their copies of the book. Nicholas Davidoff, thank you so much for joining us. And by the time this show airs, The Other Side of Prospect will be out in stores. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been so nice to be here. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Other Side of Prospect. I'm Mark, and I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hello. Hello, I'm Madison, and I'm coming to you from my home store in Indianapolis. Not too far away, just far enough away, though. So we've got a couple of great books to discuss. Madison, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Go ahead. Excellent. So I chose a truly inspiring book called The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. Ooh, this book is 
A lot. Um, it is the true story of Mr. Hinton's wrongful murder conviction and the 30 years that he spent on death row. Uh, in Alabama in 1985, he was uh, arrested and charged for a double murder that he did not commit. The weakness of the defense uh, in court, coupled with a very biased justice system in 1980s Alabama, if you can imagine, kept Mr. Hinton imprisoned, but it did not diminish his hope. He used what mental and emotional and spiritual touchstones he could to make the time as inspiring as possible. And he turned to books as a means to escape and a means to inspire and just to feed that hope that you really truly need in a situation like that. He even started a book club that he uh, partnered with his uh, fellow convicts, and it, I believe, still goes on to this day. Eventually, and thankfully, uh, his story reached uh, Mr. Brian Stevenson, whom you may know from the fantastic book Just Mercy. I don't want to spoil too much as far as the ending is concerned, but uh, Mr. Stevenson and his Equal Justice Initiative heard the story and uh, took some action. So if you are looking for a book that may infuriate you at times, um, but will also fill you with a lot of inspiration, then please, please check out The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. Madison, what do you have for us? So when I was choosing a book to recommend this week, I went with something that was recommended in my AP English class way back when, Monster by Walter Dean Myers. Oh, yeah. So Monster is kind of a great introduction into the legal system, especially for the time or younger audiences. So it follows the story of 16-year-old Steve Harmon, who is accused of murder. And the whole story, you don't know whether he's guilty, whether he's in innocent. You just kind of see this whole take from a 16-year-old boy's perspective of how the legal system works and how he's being treated within the legal system. And I think it's just such a raw telling of how that would be for like such a young boy and that, being accused of murder with that, that I think it is a great introduction into the legal system if you want something to dive into but aren't ready to take that nonfiction step yet. Fantastic. And that is Monster by Walter Dean Myers, which I also highly recommend. It's a fantastic book. It's still being taught in many schools around the country to this day, but can really touch any audience member who wants a wonderful read. So that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, you can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark, and you can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I am Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Bye. Happy reading. Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.